When you get there, go ahead and stand to your feet and I'll read the text this morning. Then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, well, seven times in a day, he turns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And so the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it should obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things which were commanded him? I think not. So likewise... When you have done all things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now it happened that he went through to Jerusalem. He passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And then he entered a certain village and there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so he said to them, Or when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And so Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? Were there not any who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed the kingdom of God is within you. And then he said to his disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as lightning that flashes out of the one part of under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. 
And likewise, it shall also, as in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on that day, Lot went out of Sodom. It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let not him come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you that in the night there will be two in one bed and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding together and one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. They answered and said to him, Where, Lord? And so he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. You may be seated. We're going to look at four things in this text this morning that, in an essence, requires for you and I to have sincere faith. That is the title of the message. Sincere faith is required. We're going to look at avoiding offenses, growing in our faith, glorifying God, and observing the kingdom. As some of you who may be history students and some of you who uh, are not may still know that um, the Romans were really fond of the Greek culture. And uh, being a few hundred years uh, past that world-governing empire, the Romans uh, took over the world and part of the things that began to happen was the international trade. And one of the things that the Roman high-class society uh, desired were these sculptures uh, that were available from that culture. And so the traders picked up on this. They began to uh, distribute them, gain profits from bringing them uh, to the Romans who had the money. And, of course, since they were old and some of them um, were damaged, and so they would take wax and they would fill in the damaged areas with this wax and sell them as if they were in perfect condition. Well, it wouldn't take too much time or to elapse where the wax would begin to dry out change color, and in some cases, under high temperatures, melt. You know, as he, somebody's nose falls off, you know, they can wait, that's not very nice. You know, you sold me this, you know, and it's not totally inauthentic. It's got some damage to it. And so, the, obviously, the vendors had to come clean with this, and so they had to differentiate between the genuine works and the works that were uh, made with wax. And they used the Latin word for the undamaged status as being sine, S-I-N-E. And the Latin word um, for without was sera. And uh, for wax. And so they had to designate between what was authentic and undamaged and they would use the word 
sign Sira. Sign Sira without wax. Christians are to be without wax, as it were. We're to be sincere. We're to be authentic. Often I believe that this is thing of dealing with offenses. Now in some of your translations you may have the word temptations there. Uh, it's communicating the same thing. But a lot of times our authenticity as true believers comes in the way of how we handle the differences and how we handle the offenses that come. As Jesus said, it's impossible that offenses don't come. I mean, it's just going to happen. How is that? Well, number one, we live in a fallen world. We're under the curse. We all have fallen natures. And when you get two fallen people engaged in a relationship, at some point in time, their sparks are going to fly. And I don't think I really need to explain too much more beyond that. We are all pretty aware of it. But sin is serious. Offenses are serious. They must be dealt with. You think about the drastic measures that were taken by Jesus to deal with sin. It took his life. He had to shed his blood. Sin is powerful. It needs to be taken care of. It needs to be dealt with. It took the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from our sin. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to live without its control over us. It's the only thing that can loosen its grip upon our lives. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that we need. So we have to be careful with our life. We don't want to cause other people to sin. You know, leading others astray. I had a problem with that in my BC days. And thank God for his mercy and his forgiveness. But I know how it's easy to lead others astray. Punishment awaits those who prey upon the helpless. I tell you what's coming for these pedophilia, these people that are involved in this human trafficking, the judgment that awaits them unless they repent, it will be the lowest parts of hell. For to prey upon children and the, the helpless, there's not going to be any kind of mercy for the unrepentant. And really, that's what Jesus is saying here. Be careful with your life. Be careful how you deal with things and that you do deal with them when there are offenses. Be self-aware. You know, am I unnecessarily being offensive to other people? Well, you know, we all have blind spots. And so sometimes we cross the line with certain people or say certain things that we're not even aware of. You know, if someone offends you, then, you know, let them know. I mean, that's really, it's just part of being you know, an adult, really. Hey, look, you know, I don't know if you really meant it, but you, this is how that came across, bro. That was, that was really rough. You can be gentle. You don't have to be mean-spirited if someone stomps on you and crushes your feelings. You know, the, the proper response is to be honest but to, and to be forthright in gentleness. You know, rebuke them it means to admonish them. Uh, you're just... You're, what does that mean when you rebuke someone? It isn't, it isn't busting their chops, as they say if, if you're a New Yorker, <laughs> necessarily. It, it just says, look, you know, I just don't, this is, a, I disapprove of this and what you've done. And then you have to, that helps soften that is you have to consider yourself. 
Because we've all been guilty of that, saying things that are harsh or wrong or offensive. So, you know, this is, I found, you know, if I consider my own sin and how many mistakes I've made, it helps me to not be so mean-spirited if I have to confront somebody else. I mean, and this is not a fun thing to do, but you, we're, we're taught to do this when we're offended. And I guess the whole idea is that we need to all live in a state of constant forgiveness. That's really what I think one of the biggest lessons that we learn of in our earth, our journey from earth to heaven, just to learn how to be forgivers. Can you imagine how good God is at forgiving? I mean, you just can't measure that. And I think about Jesus' earthly ministry. When you read through the Gospels and you realize what he had to put up with, I mean, not, I mean, no, the disciples had their issues, but they loved him. But I'm talking about the Pharisees who hated his guts. I mean, they, appall, they were appalled by Jesus and how he handled himself with, against those who were constantly looking down their self-righteous noses at him and condemning him and making fun of him behind his back and looking for any way possible to trip him up and figure out a way to bring him down. And he was just loving, <laughs> who, when he was reviled, did not revile again. I mean... This is the kind of grace that God is working in our lives. That when we're offended, we just don't return in kind. You know, and he says there, forgive them, you know, seven times a day. You know, does he really, does he really want us to keep track? <laughs> no, I think seven is the number of completeness. It's just the idea of extending forgiveness endlessly, just like he extends forgiveness Endlessly. Now, I know some of us have, have major hurts, and you've been offended very deeply, but you can't harbor that. You can't hold on to that. You've got to forgive. You've got to let it go, and you've just got to keep bringing it to God until he gives you enough grace and changes your heart till you can release them from the judgment and just learn to turn it over to him. When you're offended and people sin against you, it's like incurring a debt, and you know... Debts need to be settled. And so one of the best ways I've found over the years uh, to deal with people who've offended me, uh, first of all, is I realize they need forgiveness and I don't want to be dealing with this. I write it down. I write it out. Lord, this is what I think. This is what I feel. I write it down on a piece of paper. And I present it before the Lord. And then I'll say, Lord, I'm take that paper and I rip it in half, I'm canceling that debt. They don't owe me thing. I'm just turning it completely over to you. And that's a good way to get it out of your heart and out of your mind and leaving it with God. You know, these guys, these Pharisees would attack him uh, regularly. These guys were guilty of divorcing their wives. They were abusive to women. They were condescending, self-righteous and judgmental. And they were accusatory. Now think about this. These were the leaders. And how many people have gone to church and spent time in church and have been damaged by church relationships? It's, I mean, I don't want to tell you how many things I've had, to, conversations I've had along these lines over the years. Yeah. People get hurt. But that doesn't mean you stop Serving the Lord doesn't mean you stop going to church. It means you try to mend 
those relationships. The Bible tells us to try to be at peace with all men as much as lies within you. I can't make somebody else apologize, but I can be extending forgiveness regardless of what they do, and I can have a forgiving heart towards them, and that's really what God asks us to do. Who's been more offended than Christ? Who's been injured more than Jesus? Who gets blasphemed more than God? And yet he forgives, and he forgives, and he forgives. Oh, there'll be a day for the unrepentant, for those who don't turn, but we just leave that with him. So forgiveness is the way of life for a sincere believer. In reality, the Lord wants us to grow in our faith because that's really what blew the disciples away. Are you kidding me? Seven times a day? He's a jerk, Lord. No way. I can just hear the, the gears turning in their minds. Seven? Wow. Okay, well, I just need more faith, yeah. Don't we all? <laughs> yes. So here's, and then he says, look, if you had the faith of mustard seed faith, you know, the tiniest of all the seeds, you could say, it's like, wow, I wish I had mustard seed faith because I haven't really, you know, (laughs) relocated any, you know, mulberry trees lately. So really it's, and what he's trying to say here isn't really the quantity of our faith. It's the reality of what you have. The reality of your faith requires you and I to extend forgiveness continually. That's just who we are. We're his, and we become God-like. We're imitating him by being forgiving. You know, if our faith is smallish, we're going to have trouble doing that. The fact is, I think if our faith is smallish, we'll have trouble being obedient to God. I think... It's important, and as Jesus gets into this, he uses what appears to me to be like, how does faith and duty tie in with forgiveness and faith? It's like, well, Jesus made the uh, connection, and it really comes down to having a proper perspective of ourselves. And he uses this servant-master role to sort of reveal that to you and I. We're unprofitable servants, you know, think about that for a moment. Is, does God really need me? Does he really need you? I mean, he can get along just fine without any of us. Is that not true? I mean, that's, the, that's probably the starting point for our perspective right there. He doesn't need us. Nor do we need special treatment from other people or from the Lord. Oh, you're, you're, but you're, you're special. I'm the exception to the rule. And what does the scripture say? Well, he's no respecter of persons. He treats us, every one of his children, exactly the same way. If we do well, we're commended. If we don't do well, well, then we can expect to get a spanking. I mean, he's no respecter of persons. You know, just because I do good works doesn't necessarily mean that uh, I'm going to get a pat on the back. And I shouldn't be expecting that. If we do our jobs at work, all we can expect is to get the paycheck at the end of the week, right? Does your boss come up to you and every time you get an assignment done or you complete a task, does he come up and reward you and pat you on the back? No, because you're just doing your job. That's 
how we're supposed to look at this situation. Forgiveness is expected. It's what we're supposed to do. You don't get any bonus points for letting people off the hook, right? But I can tell you, being a, considering yourself an unprofitable servant requires faith. You've got to know your place. You've got to know the character of the God you serve. Now let's just look here at, at what this word unprofitable means. It's a curios, which is good for nothing. Now, how many of us consider ourselves good for nothing? Now, that's really the perspective that we're supposed to take of ourselves. Say that we are on, say to yourself, we are unprofitable servants. Like I said before, God doesn't need us, but he loves us. You know, this servant that he described here is just doing his job. He's fulfilling his, what he's obligated to do as a slave. Do you consider yourself a servant of God? A servant sounds a little nicer than slave, doesn't it? Just a little bit. So we don't mind being called servants of the Lord, but are you the slave of the Lord? Now, I don't mind being a slave, but just don't treat me like one, right? Well, you know, if you're a slave, you shouldn't expect any kind of special treatment. You have a job to do. You are a slave. Oh, so that's really going to attack... Uh, my self-perspective. A lot of times, let's be honest, we take, our, we take ourselves way too seriously. Like, I'm special or I'm really important. And without me, where would you be, you know? We don't say that, but we, it's just human, fallen human nature. We're, we don't really see ourselves as God sees us. And we need help with that. Now look at this. You know, this is a perspective on slavery through the ages. Work all day, you know, what do you do when you work all day? You want to come home and rest, chill, right? Well, rest from your hard labor. Well, a slave still has to serve when he's exhausted, even at the end of the day. I have to go ahead and prepare to meet, continue to meet the needs of the master. I don't have time for my own, right? And rather, I have to wait patiently have my own needs met. This is really what Jesus lined out here. And all the time, I've got to maintain the right attitude. I mean, this is hard work. Sometimes it's really hard work to be forgiving. Sometimes it's really difficult to, have, to keep a, a right perspective on ourselves. Let's not take ourselves too seriously. Let's not think we deserve better. Let's not think we're Above this, every, you know, our natural desires are to avoid obligations when we're tired. I'm bailing. And we get impatient when our needs are not being met. Especially in the time frame which they, we think they ought to be met, you know. We have to see ourselves as slaves. Good for nothing, Really? You know, the way to get there is just start comparing yourself to God. That'll help. Helps me. Verses 11 through 19. I love this part. The encouraging part of the message. That's what we were created for. We were created to glorify God. 
to love him with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, in this passage here, in verse 11 we read, now it happened as he went to Jerusalem, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. He entered into a foreigner zone. The Samaritans were the half-breeds. They were the unwashed of the culture. They weren't of pure Jewish stock. They were looked down upon. But Jesus passed through that. Do you want Jesus, does he ever pass by your station in life? I can't imagine how these unclean lepers felt. How hope must have just filled their Oh! Woo! There's Jesus. No doubt they'd heard about other lepers being cleansed because that happened in chapter 5. This incurable disease, this plague, this malady is going to kill me. There's no, there's no healing that can take place. There's no remedy for, for leprosy. You're going to die. It's a death sentence. It's just a matter of time. And Jesus passes by. You know, this is what we have to be paying attention because when you're in the time of an impossible situation, that's when the Lord passes by. You need to be open and you need to be paying attention because the Lord's going to pass by. And it's going to be up to you to respond to him being there. This is why coming to church is very important. Where any two or three are gathered in his name, he's there in the midst. And when he's there in the midst, there's a power and a presence that can do anything that's needed in your life. You got to be there. You got to be aware of what God is doing. And Jesus heard their cry Have mercy upon us, heal us from the effects of this leprosy, Lord. Please wash me, cleanse me. You know, the one in chapter 5 is really good. Lord, if you're willing, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And I can say to you, God is willing. Jesus reached out and he touched a leper. He'll touch you. Yes, we are sinful. We are unprofitable servants. We're all of that. We are worthy of the least of his tender mercies, as Jacob said. But he loves us, and he wants to minister to us and help us. And God, how many of you has God visited, and he's passed by your station, and you've cried out, and you've received his blessing. You've received his touch. And one of the things that we have to be careful of when that happens and becomes a reality, and we know that it was God who did those things, but we stop and pause and give thanks, and we give ourselves to worship. I think it's one of the easiest things to overlook what God has done for us. It's so easy to be unthankful. It's so easy to be ungrateful. It's, it's well, now that I got that, let's on to something else, you know, and I just think this is a real good reminder for us to always... Thank the Lord and express our gratitude to him for all that he's done. Now, this guy was a foreigner, as we've read. He was out living outside the covenant of God. 
He knew he was unworthy to receive anything, so he didn't assume just because he was who he was. He didn't have a, he had more of a right perspective on understanding what unworthiness was all about. And yet he received a miracle because he, he cried out for mercy. And this is our cry, is it not? Grace, grace crieth this poor sinner. And we must see ourselves in that way before God. And what did he do that's so special? He returned to Jesus and gave thanks. And I think that's what worship services should be filled with. We're so thankful for what God has done. We're so grateful for what he does. Think of all the miracles that have happened in our church in the last few years. Have we not had some incredible things take place? The healings, yes. The miracles of healings have taken place. People have been saved. People get baptized and they turn their lives around. And this is everyone in this room, in this sanctuary, that has been born again is a living miracle of God. How did any of us ever get saved? Don't you ever just wonder sometimes, how did this happen? I was so lost and so blind and somehow God opened my eyes and I turned to him and I'm now walking with Jesus. What? How did this happen? I was, personally wasn't raised in the church. It's like he took me out of that party scene at 18 years old, and I got something better for you. I remember sitting in church service with shortly after that conversion, and like, oh, this is so weird. This is like, I am so not like these people. I, I don't really belong here. My, I was a total wreck. I couldn't sing, couldn't lift my voice, but the Lord just put me there. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel unworthy to receive anything from God. Don't. We're all just sinners saved by grace, are we not? So let's just give thanks. Let's express our gratitude. Let's be a thankful people, no matter how hard it may become in our lives. And lastly, this last section, 20 through 37, we're observing the kingdom. And these kind of, all kind of like random little stories that, that Luke has put together. He's making his last trip from the Galilee area in Samaria. He's working his way towards Jerusalem, as we pointed out. And he's assembled these teachings. He's directing here this particular one about the coming kingdom because the Pharisees who are sort of tagging along and they're sprinkled throughout the synagogues there. They're watching Jesus, you know, the patrols out watching Jesus so we can catch him. They're always there, you know. And so they ask him about the kingdom. Why would they want to do that? Because he's been, John's been preaching it. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus is preaching it. The kingdom of heaven kingdom of God is at hand. Well, okay, so where's it at? Are you going to set it up? So I don't, whether or not this was a sincere question is really beside the point, actually. Because I think it really wasn't. It, just, if you're going to set up your kingdom, and you're going to set up your throne, we, we kind of want to know so we can figure out how to not let that happen. That's really what's behind these guys. They're really not sincere, but Jesus answers them. But you'll notice that he tells them it doesn't come with observation. You're not just going to look around and say, well, it's over there or it's over here. And he's done talking to them. Why? 
because what he's about to say to the disciples is not relevant to them. They are not part of the kingdom of God. They have not humbled themselves as children to enter the kingdom. They don't respect the king of the kingdom. They don't understand it says the kingdom of heaven is within you. It really would be more literally, it means it's in your midst. It's here, it's available, and these guys had no, wanted nothing to do with Jesus. In fact, he was a threat to their kingdom of hypocrisy. They were never interested in what Jesus had to say, only to find fault with him. They were truly hypocrites. And when you think that Jesus, and you consider Jesus as being demon-possessed, you've got a severe problem. And don't think you'll enter into the kingdom of God, his kingdom, if you think he's a demon-possessed person. So, with that, Jesus directs his speech to the disciples those who would actually hear him and those who would actually listen to them. If a person isn't sincere, then it's, they might as well not hear it because they're not receiving what's being spoken. But Jesus tells them what the future is. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to go away, in verse 22. The days are going to come when you wish you would, could have a one-on-one with me. That's not going to happen anymore. And we know this happened. Jesus... You know, it says here that the Son of Man's going to be taken away. He has to suffer. He's going to be in the absence of the king for a while. And then during that period of time, there's going to be, as he describes other places, time of false prophets, false messiahs. And, oh, the kingdom's really over here. It's over there. Don't follow that. Don't get caught up in all that. The kingdom of heaven is within you. It is in your midst. It is a, you enter it by faith. It is a spiritual kingdom. Oh, it will be physical. This is what he's going to lead into here. When he comes to be revealed, it will be as the days, describing the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Let's look at this a little closer here. After he suffers the rejection, and he's gone, when he returns and is revealed, what was going on as in the days of Noah? What was going on in the times of Lot? Just normal, everyday life. It's always been this way. It's going to continue this way. So as a result, the people... Living in those times did not prepare themselves. They didn't heed the warning. They didn't really care to hear anything about God. And what happened to both of those, those communities, so to speak? They were wiped out. They were destroyed. They ate, they drank, they married, they bought, they sold, they planned, they built. Does anything sound familiar here? This is what's going on in our world today. It's no different. We're, we're primed for the second coming, are we not? So this is a, the time of his coming will be a time of judgment. I don't, um, as we look at verses 34, 35, 36, two take, two, one taken, one left, one in the field, one in, taken, the other left. 
This isn't the rapture, folks. This, just get, get that out of your theological mind. It has nothing to do with the rapture. Jesus, when he comes the second time, he's coming like a lion. And he's roaring. It is a time of judgment. The people who did not heed the message were destroyed. The people who have, are not listening to our message of his return, they're going to be destroyed. He will return with flaming fire and destroy those who obey not the gospel of Christ. He's coming as a lion and he will destroy the wicked. It's, there's a promise there. The point is, these people of those days rejected his warnings, they failed to repent, and they failed to prepare themselves. We're living in that kind of day. A day of judgment is near. What's he saying to those who are just barely saved, who come out of, as it were, the world smelling like brimstone? Don't look back. Don't look back as though you're leaving something of value. It's all temporal. There's only a few things on this present earth that are eternal. One of them is the word of God. The other is the souls of men. Everything else will burn. It's all temporal. Remember Lot's wife. Turning back. Yearning for security from what was left behind. Our security is in Christ. And that's where our hearts must be. Not on the temporal things. We must not be earthly minded and self-seeking. Because if you are, it will cost you dearly. The time of judgment here is one person is taken in judgment, the other is left. I have a feeling he's talking about the millennial reign. There are those who don't accept the fact that Jesus is going to rule and reign for a thousand years and they just need to read uh, Revelation 20. It's going to happen. He's the king. He's going to rule in a physical kingdom. Right now the kingdom of God is a spiritual in our midst available through faith and in receiving the king as your savior. But he will return as king and establish his physical kingdom. He will rule out of Jerusalem. The 12 apostles will sit on thrones ruling the 12 and over the 12 tribes of Israel. The church will rule and reign as magistrates doing and helping run the government during that thousand year reign will be under the authority of the king. One will be taken. See, turn if you have your Bible, turn, turn, you can look this one up. Turn there to Matthew 25 and we'll end with this. I think this is a great passage and I think it fits in here and it sort of capsulizes the rest of what was left out here in Luke, at least this portion of Luke. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. 
I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when would we see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it as one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food, thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then I will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them. Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so I believe this is what he's implying here. One will be taken in judgment and one will be allowed to carry on. So there is this dual human not, humanism, uh, the dual nature of, that will happen during that period of time. There'll be those like us now living in the flesh that will be continuing on into millennia. People will marry, be married, children will be born during that thousand year period. A child, if he happens to die at 100, will be considered just a child. So life, the longevity of life will be once again increased during that time. A partial lifting of the curse to some degree. Jesus will be a partial renovation of, of the earth and the atmosphere and things that we're used to now will probably be a little different, thus allowing people to live longer. But as we return from heaven with the Lord to set up his kingdom, we're not going to be of the flesh and bones as we have now. You know, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't go to heaven with this body. It just won't work there. You're, you and I are going to return with the Lord in a glorified state. We will rule and reign with him in our glorified body. Will we still have access to go back and forth from heaven? I have no idea. Will we be able to enter the new Jerusalem? I, I'm not sure I understand all, how that works. But I do believe, I expect to see glorified saints, the church, dwelling with Christ on the earth, ruling and reigning with him, and we're interacting with those who are allowed to continue on into the millennial reign. One will be taken and one left. One taken in judgment, the other left to continue on. That's, that's sort of how I see it. Now some of you, as my, along with me, look at verse 37 and wonder, what were the apostles thinking? Well, where's this going to happen, Lord? <laughs> and he answers, wherever the body is, the eagles will be gathered together. What? <laughs> you know, everybody thinks, well, you know, when the Lord comes, when there's this big judgment and the corpses are laying there and then the vultures come and feed. Well, I think it's kind of tied in actually with the lightning. When you, you know, saying that the Lord is here or there, it's not about that. When Jesus comes back again, there's not going to be, hey, did the Lord come back? This is going to be done without question. You know, it's going to come like that and nobody's stopping it. And just like the vultures 
we kind of know what's going on if they're circling around. You don't have to tell anybody, hey, what are those birds flying in the circle for? Because <laughs> there's something down below there that's dead. Okay? You, we're going to know. Just as we know that when bird <clears throat> vultures circle, there's a dead body. We're going to know when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. This isn't going to be done in secret. It's going to come in power. It's going to come in great glory. Every eye will see him. It's going to be an incredible time. So uh, that's what we have for this morning. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement for us as believers to know that our sins are forgiven and we still have that responsibility to forgive others. As we think about this message in this particular chapter, Lord, we just, we're encouraged, we're strengthened. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to pour out your spirit upon us that we could walk worthy of being your children and naming the name of Christ. Give us your spirit, Lord. Help us to walk that highway of holiness and obedience to you. Lord, we know that the flesh profits nothing. It's only through the power of your Holy Spirit and your abiding presence that we have victory. And so, God, be merciful to us and strengthen each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.